before I get into the word today, uh, today is a special day. Uh, not just because the saints don't play until tonight, which is special, but special day because 69 years ago, a particular <laughs> gift was presented, and I and I and I really do I mean this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a gift. Uh, I don't think it came with a receipt, so it couldn't be returned. Um, so, <laughs> just just the way it is. Uh, now this, I love to I love to poke at Peter, but when I look back at my life, and I think he and I have been in the same church and walked together for almost thirty years now, and we have served together on a pastoral team for nearly twenty years. I'm, I'm just very grateful for my friend. So happy birthday, pal. <laughs> Story of the sovereignty of God. A bloke, he was a bloke born in London. Amen. So you got to wonder how on earth he ended up over here. But, yeah, <laughs> you could have stayed over there to take care of the Irish, though. You didn't need to come over here. Uh, well, this morning, <clears throat> you guys mind if I get political with you this morning? I mean, you're living, you're swimming in politics right now, right? It's everywhere you turn. It's, well, I was going to say it's in the newspaper, but none of us get the newspaper hardly ever anymore. So, uh <laughs> But it's on the news channels. It's, it's just constantly in front of us. And so I thought, I, you know, I can't ignore this. It's too much of a big deal to us. So I titled today's message, Voting for a Hopeful Future. And I guess I want to ask this question. You know, we're about nine days away from going to the polls. And a lot of emphasis is going to be put on that, the importance of it. I do hope every one of you who's eligible to vote, has plans to go to the polls on November 6th, and you've got reasons why you're going to vote. You've been hearing campaigns and campaign promises, and you have certain desires that are important to you, and my question is, on November the 7th, where is your hope going to be? The day after you've cast your vote, and everybody else in the country has cast their vote, and Unless there's some kind of hanging Chad thing, which you guys in Florida know a little bit about apparently. <clears throat> We're going to know something the next day. But for you, I, I really hope, I think functionally, I, I don't know if what I'm about to say is true enough. But for you, I hope that, that the hope you have for your future won't be any different November 7th than it is today, October 28th. And if it is, then it reveals something that God maybe wants to comment to us about. You know, campaigns, and we've been hearing lots of campaign speeches and debates and discussions. Campaigns are about presenting and promoting a, a hopeful future. Right? They're about talking about how hope can be found in the future. If we'll do this, if we'll adjust this, if we'll manage this, touch this area of your life, then the future can be filled with hope. All right, let me take you into some campaign rhetoric here. Here's what one candidate says. I want you to locate the hope in each of these statements. On day one, 
I will begin turning this economy around with a plan for the middle class. Starting on day one, I will do what it takes to get America back to work. As president, on day one, I will focus on rebuilding America's economy. I will remove the crippling uncertainty that is preventing business from hiring. You guys, are you guys hearing hope? Are you hearing where hope can be located in these statements? I will work with you to help our children attend better schools and help our economy create good jobs with better wages. I will insist on a military so powerful that no one would ever think of challenging it. I will introduce market competition and consumer choice to Medicare so that future seniors can get higher quality care at a lower cost. As president, I will show the good things that can happen when we have more, more business activity, more jobs, more opportunity, more paychecks, more savings accounts. In my first 100 days in office, I will take a series of measures to put these principles into action and place America and the world on safer footing. If I'm elected president of these United States, I will work with all my energy and soul to restore that America, to lift our eyes to a better future. All right, listen, campaigns are about getting you to cast your vote for a hopeful future. All right, that's what they're about. And that's why they traffic in categories that you and I hold dear, categories like provision. There's a ton of stuff being said about provision in some of these places. Security, safety, living a life that's secure, living a life that just can't suddenly be destroyed or taken away from you. Living in abundance, living in plenty, living in prosperity. Right? These are all the, the things that campaign slogans are made of, and we're, we're kind of getting used to hearing those things now. All right, now the question, do these things, do these hope from our hope brokers, you've got two hope brokers standing in front of you. Both of them are saying, hey, I can, I can deliver hope into your life. Vote for me. And there's another one saying, no, I can deliver hope into your life. You vote for me. Is, is hope really the business of a government? Is that really, really where any human being should be looking to the government to provide hope for the future? And that's not new. This isn't presidentially new. If you went back and you, you listened to some of the rhetoric of the Caesars back in the days when the scriptures were being written, they would be brokering hope, trying to get people support, trying to get, even though they were more of a dictatorship, they wanted people to buy into what they were doing and what they were offering. And so their taxes, their taxes were about protection. You need a, a strong military to protect you from foreign invaders who could come in or just to establish order in the empire. You need us to do that. You, you need government to provide roads. We're going we're to pave roads throughout the Roman Empire. And it's going to increase commerce. And businesses are going to be coming to you. And trade routes are going to increase. And it's going to be good for you if we do that. There are promises about security. There are promises for people who would serve in the military that they'd be given land. And they'd be put into businesses if they would serve in the military. So that they could have a better future. And if you move from the, the empires of the Caesars to 
just to go west a little bit with history into the, the, the kingdoms in Europe where kings made promises. And they offered a lot of the same promises. We'll protect you. There's all kinds of foreign invaders. We're going to protect you from those foreign invaders. Uh, we're going we're to bring about justice in the land. These land barons who are taking advantage of you, the king is on your side. The king will make sure that the barons treat you correctly and you get your fair due. So protection and security was offered by these guys. So when you listen to campaigns, here's what a campaign's trying to do. I think I wrote this in your outline. The goal of a campaign is to find the address where your faith and hope are located. That's what a campaign is about. That's what the candidate's trying to do. He's trying to find the address where you as an individual place your faith and your hope. Because if he can find your address and he can speak to it, he can touch on it and how it's real, he can touch about the concerns that you have in that category, well, he can get your vote. That's what a campaign is trying to do. So let me ask you this morning about where your address might be located, right? Do you hope in job security or career? Do you put your hope and your faith that the future of your life, the good of whatever's going to be five years from now, ten years from now, is going to be based in the kind of job you're able to get, the kind of career that you're able to pursue? Do you hope in prosperity? And the dream that the future contains more. It was interesting, one of the candidates there talked about more. More of this, more of that, more of this, more of that. Because whether you've ever sat down and thought through it or not, you and I live for more. Right? How many of y'all just want the same? Just, just want same. I just want the same car, the same house, the same cell phone. I'm good. Upgrade. Pfft. I'll never upgrade. I want the same phone. You know, we want more. We want our life. And and there's something in us that gets really bored with same. And so we start feeling like we've got to have something new. I've got to have more than what i got right now. Do you hope in safety from criminals or from terrorists who can disrupt the economy or criminals who can come in and and take something from you, make your life feel insecure or threatened? The well-being that you hope to have as you, as you live in a certain place and enjoy life. Do you hope in a future moral society? That's an interesting one, huh? Some of these things aren't wrong to hope for, by the way. It'd be nice if the future society was a moral society. It made moral decisions. But my question for you is, what if it's not? What if it's not, that's not where the society goes? You basing your future hope in that? Do you hope in education to open a good future to your children? The ability to provide for them, to, to strengthen their ability to perform in the world and get good jobs. There's a lot of talk about how education solves everything. Have you guys seen this? Have you listened to politics? Do you realize you are being taught every day that well-educated people lead a better life? Education is the solution to everything. Why is the crime rate the way it is? Why are people living the way they are? Why is certain geographies and locations full of crime? Well, it's always about education. Uh, I'm not sure that's really true. Do you hope in provision to meet your family's daily needs or your own needs in old age? And all these policies are about that. Do you hope in your future health? 
And somebody's going to do something to make sure that your body's going to be able to, to receive the medical care that it needs as challenges are awakened in it. This is, this is a campaign about hope. It's asking for your vote to vote for somebody who can tweak the things where your, your hope lives at whatever address that it lives at. But we need to be pretty careful about where we put our hope. Hope is a powerful thing. It's related to faith and trust, and, and the Bible's all over that. God's all over that. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, after the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested in the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme. He slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the, war, in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. In the 1830s, when Alex de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, he noted a strange melancholy, he said, that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. It's an interesting thing, huh? Historically, we have always had so much more than everybody else in the world. But there is this melancholy that just haunts us. Keller says, Americans believe that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. But such a hope was illusory. Because, de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Never satisfy the human heart. Listen, there's, there are things in our lives that go beyond any campaign promise, any tweaking of the future. If these guys could do half of what they say they can do, and if you've just read your civics book, you'll find out they can't do most of what they say because it's not in the power of the office. But if they could do half of what they say they could do, you'd still be a fool to put your hope in whatever it is that they're able to accomplish. Now listen, I sit here this morning with you and, and, and you know, I, I live the reality of living in these places as well. I mean, I, my life is not exempt from the temptation to worry in these categories. Right? I'm, I'm getting older. My, my body makes noise on a regular basis now. Daily, something is telling me there's something ain't working right inside of you, dude. So, yeah, health care, that means something to me. The thought of older age and retirement, you know, because if you're going to plan for retirement, you can't do it the day before you retire. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that. Um, I have seven children that I'm concerned for their future. What kind of future will they have? How will they be prepared for that future? What, what place does education play? In the future of their lives, what kind of jobs will they pursue? Are they, are they adequately prepared for that? And is there a place in the economy for that, right? When you're hearing all these statistics about college graduates who can't find jobs. So, listen, I, I, don't, I don't live exempt from having to wake up in the morning and, and fight for where is my hope? What address did my hope move to overnight? Uh, I misplaced it. All of a sudden, my, my hope is in 
my children's education. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm all worried. My, my hope is in future jobs and the economy. And uh, what, what about the future the future of the church if the economy continues to slide? And giving for churches all over the country has, has been in a slide for the last three years. I've got I to gotta deal through those things too. And so here, here's what's common for human existence. What's common to every one of us is this, this thing on the inside called neediness. Every day of our life, you and I have something on the inside, like a little meter, a little gauge on the dashboard that declares, I, I have need. Some of them in a variety of categories. But the moment need comes in contact with uncertainty, right, when those two get around each other, if everything's clear, everything's certain, everything's predictable, need feels one way. But the moment need gets in the presence of uncertainty, Right, now you have a good equation, a good math equation. Need plus uncertainty equals anxiety. That's where anxiety comes from. Because what dwells in every one of us, and whether, you're, whether you're wealthy here this morning or you're barely getting by, what's in every one of us is we need something from outside of us. We are, we are not self-contained Units, we need other things. We need provision. We need safety. We need a sense of protection and care. We need people. We, we need jobs. We, we need stuff. And when uncertainty hits, anxiety shows up in our lives. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. See if we can get some insights from what the Bible has to say about being in need and experiencing something called anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 through verse 33. Here, here's the remedy to what campaigns are selling, right? Campaigns first want you to feel a little anxiety. How many of y'all notice how much fear is in campaign ads? You know, nobody stands up and says, look, you can either vote for me or you can vote for him. Either way, it's all going to be about the same. You know, nobody stands up and says that. They stand up and say, if you vote for him, the future of your life is a landslide terror on its way to hell. I mean, it's just, oh, if we don't do the right thing in this election, it's just, it's just cloaked in fear, isn't it? Well, here, here's the remedy for what campaigns are selling. Because they first got to sell you anxiety before they can sell you the solution to your anxiety. All right, here's the remedy. I'm going to start back in verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that word for money actually means money and the things it can provide. Possessions and way of life. You cannot serve both of these. You cannot place your hope in God and at the same time be placing your hope in the uncertainty of riches and economies and what might happen in the future. So Jesus says this. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? Or or what will we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, no matter who is elected president. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the living word of God preserved on these pages. And thank you for your spirit who leads us into the truth. Truth, God, that we could not see without your grace to have our eyes opened. So, Father, be in this meeting with us this morning to open our eyes to see these words of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, listen, the remedy to anxiety, it wasn't the Caesars and what they could do back then. It's, it wasn't the kings and what they could do in Europe, and it's not the president today. But it is in these verses. And two things I want to highlight. One, the remedy is about faith and trust and hope in your heavenly Father. And two, the remedy to anxiety is about seeking first the kingdom of God. That's where this Bible passage goes. Let me just walk us through pieces of it here. First, faith, trust, and hope in your heavenly Father. All right, well, well, who who is this heavenly Father that I should invest my vote in him? I should invest, put in him the address where I'm going to hide my hope and my trust and my faith for the future. Who is he that he should be trusted this way? Well, just in this passage alone, Bible's all about who he is, but just let's, let's be contained to this passage here this morning. First, he's, he's the Lord of creation. He's the one who created everything, spun it into existence, and causes it to act the way it does. He's the inventor of everything that you see, And he's the sustainer of everything that you see. And and that gets illustrated here by talking about the birds. Did you know that that birds just don't exist, but that God actually cares for the birds? I mean, God is actively involved here. The reason why you and I are being compelled by this passage to trust God is not just because birds exist, but because God daily is caring for birds every day. God cares for birds. Did you know God's caring for birds today? I don't know. I used to duck hunt. I didn't think that way back then, but I was just hoping he was caring for them to respond to my really bad duck calling, and they would show up and be shot at by me, and I wasn't a good shot either, so apparently he was protecting the birds as well in that day. But let me just show you something. If you can turn quickly to to Job chapter 38. God's going to share his resume with Job. And it's interesting that these points get made here in Matthew. The God who is in charge of clothing the grass in the field, and he's doing that on a daily basis. And the God who's in charge of making sure the birds are cared for, and he's doing that on a daily basis. That kind of stuff gets mentioned against the backdrop of anxiety. 
against the backdrop of, of us wondering, has, has God, did God take the week off or maybe the last couple of years off in my life? Where, where is he? Well, Job had that experience. Job wondered, where, where is God? There's something really wrong going on here. And eventually Job became kind of vocal about that, and he kind of let his attitude be known. And so then God shows up, and he begins to ask Job some questions, right? In Job 38, he basically says, hey, Job, I understand you wanted to meet with me. You, you had some questions about how the universe was run. Well, all right, Job, man up. You got questions? Let me ask you some questions just to see if you're prepared to even understand how I'd even answer your questions. Or you do realize you got questions about your life, but I don't know. It's kind of like asking for calculus when you just got finished learning two plus two is really four. And you're asking questions about calculus. I mean, all the calculus teacher can do is say, look, I could answer you, but you wouldn't understand anything I'm saying. And that's what God does with Job. So let me just skim through a couple of these thoughts here in verse 4. Hey, Job, you got questions? How about this one? Uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? All right, listen, honestly, in humility, you guys who travel up and down inter the interstate here, right? You see the, the, the job they're doing on the interstate there? Going over, was that like transcontinental, I think, the little overpass thing that they're building? Could any of you really explain why that's not going to fall down when it's done? I mean, really, can you, do you really, you're going to get in your car, you're going to drive over, but do you have any idea why tons and tons of cement are not just going to fall and smash the people below it? I mean, when you stand on the river, do you have any idea why a, a, a boat, a ship made of iron with a hull that's probably this thick? Where's John May? John could tell us how thick the hull is. Oh, is that good? Am I close? All right, so you got this thick. You ever take this thick of a piece of metal and throw it in the water? And then you put a lot more of it together and make it weigh tons and tons and tons, and it floats beautifully. Can any of y'all explain that? Right, there's a lot of stuff we just can't explain, and this is invented by humans. God says, hey, somewhere there's a foundation for the entire universe. Any of you guys know where it is? Any of you guys got a measuring device that could possibly figure out what it takes to do what I do? Verse 12. Hey, Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place. See, you and I wake up every morning not realizing God made the sun come up today. It didn't just happen. The sun doesn't do anything on its own. God makes the universe do what it does. Right, verse 34. Hey, uh, Job, can, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? What makes it rain? God makes it rain. The rain comes from God. It's, oh, yeah, but we can explain, explain that meteorologically. Well, God uses meteorology to make it rain. But it's God who makes the rain come. Look at verse 39. Job, can, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Verse 41. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young one cries to God for help? And wander about for lack of food. All right, so here's God, same resume, saying, listen, why is it that you can trust me? Well, because I have created everything and I sustain everything. The, the lion who lives in the woods that you don't even know anything about. The raven who just makes noise and flies away from your house and you have no idea what's the future of that bird. I'm on it. 
every day of that raven's life, I'm providing food for that raven to eat. Every lion and its young that need food, it doesn't just happen. It's not just an accident. Your life is not filled with one favorable accident after another. It's filled with a God who's personal. And so that's the display here. You have, you have concerns about the future? You have anxieties in your life? Well, the remedy is to, f- to trust and hope in the God who created everything and who sustains everything. And then he turns around and says, and you are more valuable to me than everything else that I've created. That's who this is. All right, who is this Heavenly Father? Second, he's, he's a def- the definer of human life. We learn in verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And maybe for our campaign day, is not life more than education levels and economic benefits and the ability for your dollar to go further? Is not life more than your physical existence so that health care and your future in the realm of health care, is not life more than those things? Yes, it is. God defines life as something more than these things. And even if you have those things, you'll notice on the inside, you don't always feel like your life is going well. It's not just people who have physical issues in their body that that get depressed and are unhappy with their life. They can be very healthy people. Isn't that life more than those things? Well, yes, it is. Okay, well, what does God say life is? John 17, 3, Jesus says, in this is life. That they understand and know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's what Jesus says is life. Life for the human being who's been created by God. Life for him is, is knowing God. There's something drinkable, experiential about knowing God, about increasing in my understanding of who is this God. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament In chapter 9, verse 23, said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Listen, the future campaign is about whether or not you're going to have power, power in a job, power in some political sense, whether you're going to have money, whether the economy is going to turn, whether you're going to have a certain job that provides for you a certain amount of wealth so that you can live a certain kind of life. But God turns around and says, but even if you have those things, don't put your hope in that. Don't find yourself boasting in those things. Let him who boasts, boast in this, whether you got a lot or little, whether that guy gets elected or that guy gets elected, whether the future of this country goes this way or it goes that way, let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. And that I'm up to something in this world and I'm up to something in your life. Boast about that. It's the most defining thing about your life is God himself. That's the most defining thing about your life is God himself. Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. He said this, if someone asked you what the greatest good on this earth is, what would you say? Financial security, health, meaningful trusting friendships, intimacy with your spouse, knowing that you belong. The greatest good on this earth is God. 
God's one goal for us is himself. You want to know what God's up to? Whatever the future and the economy, whether you're going to lose your job, have your job, lose your health, keep your health. The one thing God is up to in your life is giving you himself. More than anything else that he's doing. The good news, the best news in the world, in fact, is that you can have God himself. Do you believe that God is the greatest thing you can experience in the whole world? Do you believe that the good news is not merely the forgiveness of sins, the guarantee that you won't go to hell, or the promise of life in heaven? The best things in life are gifts from the one who steadfastly loves us. But an important question to ask ourselves is this. Are we in love with God or just his stuff? Am I here this morning walking into this building having related to God just last night, just yesterday, out of a heart that is affectionately devoted to God himself, not just staring at my bank account, not just staring at my physical life, not just staring at the things that I want in my life and saying, God, God, get involved. And almost like we measure God. You know, how big is my house? Well, that's how big God is. How big is my bank account? That's how big God is. How healthy am I? That's how good God is. Right? God's getting his definition from our own lives. But how many know God existed long before you and I ever existed? God already was something to be known. He was something to delight in all and of himself. He's not measured by what our life is like. He's measured by who he really is. And he says the greatest need you have in your life. Are you needy? Yes, you are. And the greatest need you have in your life is for me. That's the need you have. You understand in heaven there's no economy. No one votes in heaven. There's no foreclosures. So therefore, if you got money, you can't buy any <laughs> foreclosed houses. And if you don't have any money, they can't take your house. Right? There's mansions in heaven that celebrate that's what heaven's about. It's about a celebration of God. Listen, if earth isn't about that for us, then it's, it's fairly unlikely that you and I will ever even see heaven. If God is a foreign celebration to you, the greatest gift in this life is God himself. All right, who's this God? Let me get a little further here. Well, according to this passage, we're going to be told at the end here to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. So apparently God is a king. He's a king over a kingdom. Now, I don't know how often any of us think of God as a king. A king. I mean, part of our problem is that we're, we're Americans. We don't know what a king is. We know what a president is. Not sure what the American Heritage Dictionary should say what a president is. A person put in office by the vote of people, then maligned and complained about by all afterwards. Guys, that's kind of what a president is. <laughs> He's given this role, and then we just totally lose respect for him and just chop him down and, and complain about this aspect of who he is. Listen, we don't have any concept of what a king is. See, the president misbehaves. president dares to have ideas different than mine. Never even read an economy book. But doggone it, you're doing it wrong. I know it. And we just take this guy to task, and guess what we're going to do to you, Mr. President? We're going to vote your butt out, baby. 
you got four years and you're gone. Whoever he is, we're Americans. And then God steps into the scene. And we have no idea what a king is. A king who rules from the top down. A king who doesn't take a vote ever. There's no polling booths in the kingdom of God. There's no hanging chads, guys from Florida. No hanging chads in the kingdom of God. Because you don't ever get to vote. You get to trust. You get to follow. You get to be rightly ruled by a king. An incredible king. A wise king. A powerful, loving king. A terrifying king, an awful king. When people came into the presence of a king in countries and kingdoms that were ruled by kings, one, you just didn't have access to the king unless he granted you access and you were terrified to meet with this king. Can I tell you what I think one of the most basic reasons why there is such a discrepancy between the average Christian and what we see in the Bible about the average Christian. Why there's this great dysfunction between who God is and how he's supposed to operate in our lives. I would say it this way. I think it's because we've installed God wrong in our lives. When you guys were having to live here after Isaac came through. You know, we didn't have power for five or six days. And uh, everybody got reintroduced to their flashlights, right? Flashlights. Well, I've got a variety of kids in my house. Some of them can read the instructions better. Some of them understand that there's a way to install batteries in a flashlight. They have to go in a certain direction. That little thing sticking out, it's got to go in a certain direction. So, you know, you got kids bringing you a flashlight. Dad, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, no power. Nothing's going on. Why? You, you, you take the batteries out and you discover, well, you install the batteries wrong. It never will work this way. You will experience no power in that flashlight if that's the way you install the batteries. Can I tell you, if you install God in your life as something other than the king, the Lord, the owner of everything, the master of the universe, the one, the one of all created beings who has the right on any given day to do exactly what he determines to do without asking anybody for permission, the God who freaked people out in the Bible. You understand how many times God had to tell people when he'd show up around them? You know what the number one answer was? Do not be afraid, right? Our concept of God is if he showed up, I think we'd want to debate him. I think we'd want to take him on. I think we want some answers for some of his policies. <laughs> I'm going to find out what cabinet member came up with that idea, God. You know, we've gotten used to dealing with a president. We might even vote God out. God, you, you, it's a limited term, God. You better show up and do some stuff around here. When God showed up in people's lives uh, after they wet their pants <laughs> and fell to the ground, they would hear God say, do not be afraid. This God, this God in the Bible is a terrifying God. Who after he tells you don't be afraid, he explains to you, I'm your heavenly father and I feed the birds and I'm going to take care of you. But see, if, if you don't have God installed that way in your life, if you're not amazed and freaked out by God, I'm just listening to the, to the songs that Eric had us sing this morning. 
this was grounds for us to be freaked out by God. Can I ask you that? Do you ever go to church and just get freaked out by God? I mean freaked out. Oh, no. No. Who dumped you? Freaked out by God. In church? Of course not. <laughs> really? I don't know what we've done to God. But when God showed up in other places, he freaked people out. We're going to find out in Acts chapter 2, we keep reading. There was a sense of awe in the midst of the people of God. Ananias and Sapphira, they got freaked out by God. Everybody who watched him get hauled out the back door got freaked out by God. God freaks people out. And listen, if your God never freaks you out, never blows your mind, and you gaze into the future, and you're not quite sure whether you got enough money to make some stuff work, that becomes very intimidating, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? What's the future for our children? How will I ever retire? What will I do if this condition gets worse in my body? See, i got a little bitty view of God and some great big problems in my life. But what if I had a great big view of God, I'd have some little bitty problems in my life. And on November 7th, I'm cool. I'm cool. May not work out the way I want it to. May not meet my personal preferences, but my great big God isn't any smaller today than he was the day before. I think it would do us some good. Make sure, check your batteries. Make sure you got God installed right. Lastly, who is this God? Well, you're going to be told again, if you want to remedy the anxiety, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness. Apparently God's got his own brand of righteousness. Which is what makes for really interesting debates in the political realm. I would tell you this. Whatever you're going to do on Tuesday when the voting time comes... If you're a follower of the king, then you're here to represent the values of the king. Whether they're the ones you were raised with, whether they're the ones in the culture that you live in right now, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of doing life, of doing the universe, of running things. Right? Do you understand? This is, this is why... Everyone's going to follow Christ is going to need to come to grips with, you know, God already has a right way of doing stuff in the political world, like, like marriage. God's already got a right way. Now, I understand our culture has all of a sudden got up in arms saying, hey, we're going to reinvent marriage. And we want a candidate who represents what we have to say about that. We want that candidate to agree with us on that. Let me tell you something. There's a king who has a certain righteousness. And when the lights get turned out around here and it's all over with, the only opinion that's going to matter is going to be his. And he already has got some right ideas about how to treat marriage, how to treat life, how to respect life that God gave dignity to by making man in the image of himself, whether that life is born or unborn. See, these are not political issues. These are righteousness issues. Your view of abortion is not to be informed by Roe versus Wade. Your view of abortion needs to be informed by the king who has a righteous view. The king who you would fall to the ground in holy terror. You would not be standing there arguing your point about, but I think you'd be more than happy just to listen in that moment. See, but God's not installed right in our lives, so we don't got any problem taking him to task over what we think about some of these ideas. 
Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All right, let me move to that point. What does what faith, trust, hope, what does that look like? Right, we're going to trust this incredible God who is our Father, who claims to be there for us, who's ordered the whole universe, who is the king over his kingdom. But what does it mean for us to trust him? Wayne Grudem says, personal saving faith, in the way Scripture just understands it, involves more than mere knowledge. Knowledge about facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us is not enough. Moreover, merely knowing the facts and approving of them or agreeing that they are true is not enough. In addition to the knowledge of the facts of the gospel and approval of those facts, in order to be saved, I must decide to depend on Jesus to save me. If you're foggy on that point, it may be more than likely that there's something missing, that dependency, that leaning upon God for your future life. See, that's the implication of this verse. If you've trusted Christ to be your Savior, can't you trust him with what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and the future of your life? If you've trusted Christ with your eternity, that Jesus Christ became a man and died on a cross to obliterate the sins that separated us from God and make us right in our relationship with God for all eternity. If you've trusted God to do that, can't you trust him on November 7th? Can't you trust him with the future? Can't you trust him with your job? That's the implication here. But some of us really haven't trusted him that way. I I grew up acknowledging the facts of the gospel. I didn't dispute them. I wasn't writing some book to say, oh, Bible's full of lies. I, I was good. I think the Bible's telling the truth. I, I was aware of that. And I was okay with that. But I was not saved until later in my life. And listen, I knew the difference when faith really and trust for my life went into Jesus Christ to be my Savior. My world changed. There was no question for me I had truly encountered God. And maybe even this morning that might be what God wants to do with you today to give you that kind of encounter in your own life with him, to be certain that he's not just the God who's taking care of you tomorrow, but he's taking care of eternity for you as well. All right, let me move to this last thought here. Verse 33. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All right, let's get real for a minute. Let me ask you a question. What's first? In your life. Not when you're not when you're sitting in church, what's first? Not when you're sitting in a Sunday school class, what's first? What's really first in your life? What captures and intrigues you? What occupies your emotions? What makes you nervous and anxious? What makes you angry and animated? What do you get jazzed about? See, those things give away a whole lot more effectively what's really first in our lives versus some religious answer that, well, God is first in my life. Is that how you feel about God? Are you intrigued by God, enamored by God, spending time getting to know this God, being dazzled and amazed by God? Are you upset about the things that pertain to God? Are your emotions in touch with God? Do you get joy based on God? I mean, or has it got to come from some other address? some other location. See, here's what God said 
first order of business when God met with his people in Exodus chapter 20 was this. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's God's first order of business with anybody in this room. The first thing God will want to talk to any of us about is you will have no other gods before me. You will have nothing in your life more important to you than me. That's what you're designed for. You're designed that way by the God who created you. To have God sit in a place of ultimate supremacy in our lives. And God insists on it. When he's installed right, that's how he lives in our lives. One more thought here. Eric, you can go ahead and come. From Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Very helpful insight. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's a very interesting self-examination there, isn't it? Can you just pause there for a second? What is it in your life that if you lost that, you, you literally could hear hope drain out of your life? you would feel like, I, I wouldn't feel like I've got a meaning, a purpose to get up tomorrow morning. If I lost this, if I didn't have that, in, if I didn't have this person in my life, if I didn't have this opportunity in my life, if I didn't have this job in my life, if I lost that, if I couldn't be a whatever, oh man, I, I don't know. I don't know what. Okay, listen, because what you're saying is even though God would still be God, and he'd still be in your life available to you fully to provide life for you, he's not doing it right now. Something else is winning the day, providing us a sense of happiness, a sense of meaning in our lives. Keller says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Listen, whatever those things are, that's what campaign promises are trying to appeal to. Those places in our lives that we have made our life, we must have that. Life must be this way. Oh, well, if it must be that way, I'm your candidate. Because I'm going to touch that aspect of your life. Listen, if you're living life based on those kinds of categories that human beings can touch and alter, then you're living your life the wrong way. The God who created you had every intention that he would be the only one who could move and shake your life. If God stopped being God, then every one of us should freak out tomorrow, be full of fear and anxiety about the future. But as long as God is my Father, as long as He's faithful to me in my life, and He will be, then I have a remedy to anxiety. 
I'll say this, I have available to me a remedy to anxiety if I will do what this verse says for me to do in the end. It's not enough for God to be God. God is God, whether you pay him any attention at all. He's still God. You believing in him doesn't change one thing about God. It doesn't make him more worthy. So God is God. But what makes a difference in this category is not that God is God, but whether or not you seek him first. What's the remedy to anxiety? Not just God being God, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things God will take care of. So let's stand up together. I don't know I don't know everybody here so I don't know where everybody's coming from by way of their church experience you know for some people churches you know you drive up you park you go in somebody talks maybe they sing and then you know you're done and you, and you dismiss and you, and you go on all right when I look in the Bible what's normal in the Bible is a bunch of people gather together and they encounter God they encounter him they have a sense that God messed with my world this morning Something happened on the inside of me. I can't explain. It wasn't just what this guy said. It was something going on inside of me. All right, so right now, can, can I give you an opportunity to experience God that way? Let me just, let me just ask you, just, just get alone with God. You can do that. Just close your eyes. Don't worry about anybody else here. All right, nothing weird's going to happen. Well, I can't guarantee you nothing weird will happen, but I'm not going to do anything weird to you. <laughs> All right, get real for a moment. Be really honest. Are you anxious in your life right now? Might be political anxieties. More than likely it's not. Probably more like health anxieties and financial anxieties and relationship anxieties. Fear of the future anxieties. Where, where's that coming from? Why are you anxious this morning? Because whoever God is, is not real enough to you. That's why you're anxious this morning. Whoever God is right now in this moment, this season of your life, it's not real enough to you. For some, you need to hear what happened to humanity before you were ever born was that sin came into the world and it separated man from God. God became foreign to man. But man was very needy. But he couldn't sense God. He wasn't aware that God was willing to be his father, willing to meet all of his needs. That voice was silenced by sin. Until Jesus Christ came. When Jesus Christ came, he did something that no one else could ever do. He took away the wall of separation between God and man. He came to restore us to God, to bring us into relationship with God so that when you face life and fears, you can sense God telling you, hey, I'm on that because you're mine and I'm your father. Hey, I care for the birds. You know I care for you. You can hear God's voice telling you that. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're saying, dude, I, I don't remember hearing God that way in my life. I, I just don't. 
Well, here's what you can do this morning, right now where you are. You can turn to God in your anxiety. You can say, Lord, I want to be restored to you. I want to know you as my father. I want anything separating me from you to be taken away. So therefore, I'm going to trust that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins, to bring me back to God so that I could once again have God in my life the way he desired and planned to be in my life. If that's you this morning, just, just tell God that. Right now, just acknowledge to God that you want to be restored to him. You want him to come, take up his place in your life. You want to hear his voice. He wants to set you free from your anxieties. Let me just keep it real here. If you're here this morning and, and, and you just did that, in your own heart, you just did that. Can you just lift your hand? Let me just see you for a second. Just lift your hand. Thank you. A bunch of guys over here. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, if, if you've never done that before, you've just entered into something that has changed so many countless lives. In this room, in eternity, God has come in. And you get to experience him now as your God, your Father, who cares for you, and he knows your needs, and he loves you. And he's wanted this day to come where he would be restored and he could care for your anxieties. And listen, if that's, if that's something you've never done before, it's pretty important for you to take some steps and grow in that. So if you prayed that way, and listen, you might not even know me. Maybe you're just visiting here today. I'm going to just be hanging around the front here for a few minutes. Why don't you come up and just introduce yourself to me afterwards. I just want to shake your hand and be able to pray for you in the future as God begins to do something great in your life. It really is going to be amazing and incredible in your life. All right, for everybody else in this room, two things. If you can vote, I hope you will vote. I think you have a responsibility as a citizen to vote. I think you have a responsibility as a means of the grace of God in this fallen world to vote. You can affect people's lives by voting. Thank God that we have that privilege in this country. So I hope every one of you will vote next Tuesday. Vote for a candidate who put your hope in God. Does that make sense? All right, secondly, when you climb into that booth to go vote, you take this Bible passage with you because it makes a claim on you that there is a king. If you belong to him, I don't care whether you're rich or poor, black or white, I don't care what culture you come from, I don't care how you were raised, if he's your king and you're part of his kingdom, you have a responsibility to seek first his righteousness when you pull that lever. You do what you need to do to find out who seems to be representing the righteousness of God in this world. I don't believe either one of them, quite honestly, are standing as men of God. So this is not a vote for a man of God here. But there's a bunch of ideas that circulate around these two campaigns. A bunch of ideas. A bunch of ideas that are going to be imposed upon people. 
Which of those ideas represents the righteousness of the kingdom of God that you and I have a responsibility to seek it first? Let's be informed by that. Let's stand in that booth. Let's pull a lever as a means of honoring the righteousness of God and blessing the people in this world. Amen? Amen. Bless you guys. Y'all have a great week. Thank you.